Hey everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business through the lens of the week's news and try to figure out who is getting it right and who is stepping in it. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. Today we're going to talk about the news and politics. There was a lot of random ass stories this week. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about why CEOs think you'll be back in the office five days a week. Good luck with that. Yeah. And we are going to go over the horrific events um, that unfolded in Israel over the weekend and talk about how business leaders can and should respond. And then we're going to take some deep dives into the state of social media and the information ecosystem, look at language bias and performance feedback, and end on a few good notes as we always do. But first, Adriel. How are you doing, my friend? You sound a little stuffy. Yeah. Uh, so sorry to our listeners today. I sound, I don't even know what I sound like. <laughs> but here I am. Here I am. I got... You sound, honestly, you sound like yourself, basically, okay. but just a little okay. little slower and a little stuffier, yeah. which is just par for the course, yeah, I think, for yeah. that kind of thing. I also had a uh, 8 a.m. Uh, workshop this morning, 90-minute workshop, and I had to put on a lot of energy oh God, to so push through already, that. You're already in <laughs> yeah. it. Wow, so that like, is a morning. Are. Yeah, but I got tested for everything, COVID, flu, strep, and they were like, no, you're negative. Things look fine. You might you have allergies. What? And I'm like, that, that does not track. But You can't get any of that from a podcast anyway, so you know, I'm okay. So we're good. I know everyone's you know? worried about my health, but it's okay. I'm okay. <laughs> it's I'm not okay. going to catch anything from Adrian. It's all right. How are you doing? Um, It's been a chaotic yeah. week. It's been a chaotic few days. Yeah. Um, uh, I am, as you can see through video, uh, dressed up. You are. You know, ask me why. Wh- why are you so snazzy and jazzy? Where are you going? Tonight, I am going to the PR Week Purpose Awards um, here in Chicago. Nice. And I'm going because I was asked to be a judge. Ooh, look at you. That's exciting. Congrats. Yeah. So spent the last few months looking at submissions and kind of giving giving my opinion on their impact and effectiveness and creativity. And tonight, they're announcing the winners. So I'm going to uh, the Purpose Awards in person. Very, very Let you know afterward how it is. Yes exciting it is also one of my kids birthdays today so we are um we are full steam ahead in terms of life (laughs) trying to navigate all of that yeah on top of client crises Mm. on top of everything else i mean you know how it is yeah always always happy birthday that's exciting well speaking of crises i feel like we have to start by acknowledging the horrific terrorist attack in israel over the past weekend and um have a few quite a few clients with uh you know, pe- friends and family and and people they work with in Israel are being affected by this. Mm-hmm. So, just a terrible, terrible situation. And um, goes into a little bit of what I want to talk about my deep dive about how we think about social media mm-hmm. and how the information ecosystem is evolving. Um, that this crisis is bringing a light to. Mm-hmm. But just want to start by you know saying that we're thinking about um, those affected and, and war is never a good thing. And obviously, this is just a, a blatant terrorist attack. I was a little bit um, disappointed, I think, mm-hmm. by how it like devolved immediately into this kind of larger, like, we're in this spot where nuance is completely lost, of course, oh, yeah. on social, because we, we don't we don't have that. But like, we can we can say this was a horrific terrorist attack. And also acknowledge the larger global context of the Israeli-Palestinian, you know, political conflict. Yeah. And not have to 
you know, devolve into exactly all of that mess and not just come out and say, like, this was horrific. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I just I was actually really disappointed by some of my uh, progressive allies and friends who kind of just couldn't come out and say this was horrific first Mm -hmm. and then talk about kind of the global context of this unfolding. Yeah, I think that's been most surprising for me, too, is just the lack of just acknowledgement for human lives that have been lost or affected in such a negative way. Um, I I don't know. And it's, it's interesting. I was talking to our producer, Dave, just before uh, we started and I was telling him how I'm like halfway through your book. And this is, it was just so timely because you talked a lot about, you know, the need to actually say something on social and how people react Mm -hmm. to what you say and how that you can, that can affect relationships. And I'm seeing that unfold with a lot of people. Um, my timeline earlier on Twitter was like full of people that are like, I just lost a 10 year friendship because of someone's response to what's going on. And things like that um, seem to be more prevalent, um, which makes me just curious to see how all of this is going to unfold as we go into the 2024 election season. So a hundred percent. And it does uh, relate back to my deep dive today. So I don't want to go too into it because I think we're going to talk about it more, but I do want to call out that the journalist Charlie Warsaw yesterday said, What's striking to me is how many people who are not politicians or public figures at all seem to feel they have to issue public statements on their own behalf. That's exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we've created the incentive to post. Otherwise, people get upset that we're not saying anything. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to unpack that a little bit in my DDEV, but mostly I want to talk about kind of what's the responsibility of X and Threads and Facebook mm. and all of these big platforms now? Because I don't feel like feel like we've lost the thread of responsibility when it comes to this kind of global news moment. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. But in the meantime, yeah. I know you you had posted in our show notes um, a great article about the kind of uh, what business leaders can do. Yes. Uh, in in response to this, what what was the what was the call out there? Um. So a couple things. You should say something. Um. First and foremost, you want to acknowledge. Uh. I don't know why there is this. Well, I do know why, but I'm not getting into that. But there is this this sense or this this overall sentiment that leaders shouldn't say anything. They don't want to politicize their workplaces, but in fact, we are humans, we are our whole individuals. And so it's not like we start working for the day or go into our workplaces and flip a switch and the outside world right. <laughs> turns off, right? We are carrying these these experiences, experiences, these observations, this pain with us, this trauma with us. So it's important that leaders are saying things. Um, in the article, which we'll link, also they highlight, you know, just keeping it simple, focusing on employee safety, well-being, Um, ensuring that people know that there is flexibility. Hopefully you are already offering flexible work schedules. Um, Resources such as therapy, counseling um, should be available. And then one of the things that I thought was really important was what we just talked about, acknowledging suffering on all fronts, like recognizing that humans, other people are suffering, regardless of what you believe in your political stance people have suffered, lives have been lost. And so that was one of the big pieces there. So they added a few yeah. other things. Um, again, we'll link it in the show notes, but really helpful um, guidance for leaders. I, and, I, and I'm aligned with what they're saying. Say something. Don't just pretend like nothing's happening and we're all just expected to show yeah. up and, and do our best work. So 
I mean, deciding when to say something, I think is always is one of the major communication challenges of yeah. this century, right? Of the social media age, really. Mm-hmm. And, and we've worked with the clients a f- on a few fronts about that kind of creating not just crisis response plans, but just like trying to figure out when we want to lean into the news cycle. Like, when does it matter to us? When does it matter to our people? Like thinking through that kind of thing ahead of time is super important. And so few organizations will do it. Like some of their comms folks might push to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. but that's one of those that needs to be happening on like a really elevated strategic level so that everyone is aligned when we are going to respond and when we are not. Yeah, I agree fully. I I do think that you're not going to always get it right. Not everyone's going to be satisfied with what you say when you say it, but I think it's important to at least consider what your approach and what your strategy is and to not... Or when you choose not to say it. Or when, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to upset people either either way. So like make it principled, make it based on something. Absolutely. I agree. I do like that the article concludes that like, we can acknowledge the humanitarian disaster of this kind of thing. Like the, the... Again, just call it a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. call it terrible. Like we can separate out individual suffering mm-hmm. and see common humanity no matter the political situation. Yeah. Because, you know, like, yeah, Israel has a terrible right wing government right now. Like I'm I've not been a fan of Bibi Netanyahu for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that the people of Israel aren't suffering and like deserve, you know, like support. Mm-hmm. Like it's just oh Yeah. It's very layered and complicated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, I don't want to go too much farther than this, but uh, you know, I, would, I just want to acknowledge like people of Israel have been suffering. People in Palestine have not had hope for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, like, I want to acknowledge that. Like, there's just this is really complicated. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, yeah. Let's circle back on that when we talk yes. about social media because this is, I think, shining a light on that. Definitely. Um, speaking of uh, when we respond to the political news. Uh-huh weird week in politics that i think the one thing i want to call out obviously like this trump trial that's happening in his response to that has been just another circus in the long line of trump circuses mm-hmm. but i do want to um acknowledge rfk jr uh running on his own independent platform what do you think about that I- and did you see any of his like really messy announcement speech where he was like i need my speech yeah very interesting um i'm not i, I just don't understand but I guess visibility. I I don't know what's happening. I really don't. <laughs> yeah. What else happened in this week? So we've got some new um, labor news in that the Wa- Walgreens pharmacists have walked out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you been reading about this story? I mean, it's just yeah. it, this is this year in labor is just news after news after news. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I think it's really telling of the fact that organizations, leaders, as always, we're talking to you, need to start listening to their people. These are not new issues or problems that folks are walking out and striking about. These are things that have been ongoing and people haven't felt heard. And so yeah, why should they keep suffering and working for you to support your goals and your bottom line when you're not even taking care of them? So I get it. Yeah. Pharmacists are burnt out. Of, They're burnt out. Yeah, burnt it kind of reminds me. It's got some of the same notes as uh, why Starbucks has been, um, you know, uh, dealing with its own kind of uprise in labor in that um, pharmacists have been asked to do much more than they si- originally signed up mm-hmm. for. Um, you know, in, in the Starbucks example, you've got a lot of switching to mobile ordering. Yeah. 
um, on top of taking care of the people who are in in the store. And so they're basically asking me to do double the work. Mm -hmm. Similar for pharmacy, right? Like you got a lot of the digitization and the like kind of speed of um, filling the prescriptions and they they just can't keep up and they're all burned out. Yeah. And it's uh it's not great. Mm -hmm. So pharmacy closures have happened in Arizona, Washington, Massachusetts, and Oregon. We think um, based on the story that there's probably more that haven't been confirmed, mm -hmm. but I've seen it myself. I mean, we have a Walgreens pharmacy we use down the street and we've seen our pharmacists be super stressed out yeah. a lot. So I, 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 we'll see what happens. Yeah. I feel for folks that are working in the medical profession, especially now I, I had a, a doctor's visit recently and I waited over an hour and my doctor was so apologetic and one of the, I was just like, why is the wait so long? Cause I'm always asking questions. And he's like, well, there are a lot of people retiring right now and fewer of us doing this specialty yeah. and here we are. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, because he's, he's definitely approaching retirement age as well. So it's a little scary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pharmacist is a weird job to me. Yeah. I just want to say, I don't know about that. It's always <laughs> been strange to me, like that you, you do all this training. But then you got to get stuck in a corner within like a closet having to like yeah. constantly do the and you're like working out of a Walgreens. I don't know. It's a weird I, I my hat tip to every pharmacist out there. It is not a job I would like to have. It is super important. I appreciate mm -hmm. you, but I get why you're stressed out of course, for sure. Of course. What else? What else? Oh, man. So um, we should acknowledge, Justin, while we're talking about strikes, UAW is expanding its strike again. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't have a resolution there. We're keeping our eye on that story. But I definitely want to talk about this uh, research that came out this week from, I believe, KPMG about most bosses thinking that we'll be backed in the office five days a week mm -hmm. within three years. Did you see <laughs> <laughs> see this so this is from kpng's 2023 u.s ceo outlook mm. um and i just i saw that i was like my jaw dropped on the floor when i saw this based on so many conversations we have had this year what do you do you think there's merit to this? What do you where do you land on that? Let me not come to this in any assumptions. Where do you land on this, Adriel? I know folks can't see me right now, but I the whole time you've been talking, I'm just slowly shaking my head like no. <laughs> like it just it doesn't make any sense. Again, listen to the people that are making your business exist. Like yeah. I don't understand why that's so hard. Um there is I can't tell you how many people I talk to right now that have fully return to office or are working in a hybrid situation and they're like, I hate going to the office. I'm commuting. I'm wasting two plus hours to commute to the office, however many times a week. Um, and I get there and I am expected to sit on a laptop and have meetings, which I could have done at home. And I'm like, I have I, meetings on Zoom. On Zoom. With people who are still at with home. People that are still at home. Um, especially when you work in hybrid settings, because in, you know, putting my DEI hat on, that's one of our inclusive best practices is if you have people that are working from home, ideally you want to dial in on your own laptop so it makes it feel more personal and, and inviting to them. So they're not just looking at a conference room of a ton of people. So yeah, I, I don't know what CEOs are thinking, what they expect, but yeah, we'll see if that happens. 
yeah we will see well i just want to uh, just give you a sense of this um research kpmg uh analyzed insights from more than 1300 ceos mm -hmm. at large companies globally including 400 in the united states so this isn't just right united states based but the fact that they were so bullish on back back going back to uh the office is still so surprising to me i wonder i was at a um, mayor's forum mm -hmm. uh with the mayor brandon johnson in chicago at the economic club okay. a few weeks ago it was basically the mayor's opportunity to speak to the business community here and he was making a strong case for chicago's downtown economy mm -hmm. which of course he has to do but basically like a wink and a nod to the audience that like he's going to start putting a lot of pressure on you bringing employees back to your offices that are downtown. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about the kind of revitalization of downtown areas post pandemic and how working from home has really affected those economies. Right. But I, I so that was a long way of saying for these bigger companies, I wonder how much pressure they're getting politically mm -hmm. to bring people back for the sake of the local economy. And how much that's affecting this right. but my sense is that it's probably a small part and this is still just kind of like ceo na naivete mm -hmm. that's that's what i think this comes down to is just like you said not being in touch with your people yeah it's and it's tough because i mean it's tough for organizations and leaders i, I there are constantly reports every week about how employees are just not willing to budge on that you know especially those that moved away from metropolitan areas for more affordable housing and living conditions, they're not moving back to major cities or willing to take upwards to two hour commutes there and back to sit on a laptop. Yeah. They're just not. So, I mean, we've seen research about how willing people are to switch jobs, even take lower pay mm -hmm. for more flexibility. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, a lot of this has to do with the trajectory of the economy, how if the labor market continues to be strong or not. Um, you know, like, are, are people going to be desperate for jobs or do they have choices? Like, there's a lot of economic, like macroeconomic effects here. Mm -hmm. But color me skeptical <laughs> that we are going to be back in the office five days a week within three years. Yeah, for sure. Just just going to put that on the record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know we are we need to start getting into our deep dives. But have you been following this update with chat Jupiter chat GPT? <laughs> Chat Jupiter. Um, the the update meaning like about being able to post images and yes, and, and actually talk to it now. Kind of thing. Yes, but have you yeah. seen some? Have of you the... been able to? I have not yet. I haven't. I'm really disappointed. I don't have that enabled either so yet, so I haven't been able to try it out. Oh, but I've been tracking and watching people play with it on Twitter, and it is very intriguing, but also extremely terrifying. I saw someone um, share a screen record of them using chat gpt to fill in a redacted government document terrifying oh shit terrifying <laughs> terrifying <laughs> i was like what is this are my eyes deceiving me um but like it's just making inferred guesses yeah right i mean i bet i bet a lot of it's right but i'm sure some things mm -hmm. you know you don't you never know like it can't guess names right 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 um but yeah it was pretty it was pretty eerie um another feature that actually i was like this is pretty cool um and changes the game but also potentially eliminates some some jobs um you can whiteboard a uh, basically a program or a website and then take a picture of it and then chat GPT will generate the code for the website. So if you want a ah, basic website, that's like, I have seen people enter do that. your name, enter your birthday. And then when you enter birthday, do this. 
mind boggling. I was like, I can take a picture of a whiteboard. Let me go erase my whiteboard and start making some programs and websites. Pretty cool and interesting stuff. So um, yeah. I just wanted to put that out there as the, the latest update. Um, I know there are tons of generative AI tools out there, but as someone who is a little obsessed with, with ChatGPT, I thought those were pretty unique features. Yeah. So. I will say that after our conversation with Kate last week, I've been trying things out a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah. Um, like trying to learn about where things can be more integrated into my workflow. Mm-hmm. Like I had experimented with ChatGPT and, you know, some other things before, but now I'm trying to be a lot more intentional about going to it and using it as a resource and learning yeah. how to, you know, write good prompts, like you said. Mm-hmm. And so Kate, you know, if you're listening, you definitely uh, <laughs> inspired me and put a fire under me to learn learn about how to do this. Love that. Um, we should, if we're going to talk AI news, yes. uh, just acknowledge that Adobe this week came out with an AI-generated content watermark, mm-hmm. basically trying to encourage people to tag AI-generated content. Yeah. You think this is going to stick? You think people will do this? No. well straightforward okay moving on (laughs) i mean i think maybe organizations um and companies will leverage it but the the average person i don't think so um it's interesting um Mm. uh, amazon is also asking people to flag now flag if any of their content for self-publishing is ai generated so any images or or text so i think companies like adobe Amazon are starting to think about it more, whether or not people will be honest and leverage tools like this watermark. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I will say that the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope about it is that um, they say that it will be adopted by other companies Mm -hmm. like Microsoft, which is putting a lot of money into generative AI. Sure. So who knows? Who knows? knows? We'll, We'll wait and see. But we do need something, right? Like even if it's buried in the metadata or even if it's something that you kind of got to dig for sure. like we gotta we gotta figure out what's human out there because it's gonna get messy i agree i agree what are you deep diving on for us today what, what am i deep diving on my goodness Ooh, i was like deep breath <laughs> <laughs> that heavy i know um i want to talk about feedback um which we touched on i think maybe two episodes ago um and feed forward i think was the the language that was used but I want to talk about good old-fashioned feedback and the need for quality feedback. Um, Textio, which is, I guess, is it a generative AI tool? I don't know if they they consider themselves an AI tool. I believe so. But Textio is a tool that you can use to um, identify inclusive or exclusionary language. It has been used a lot um, for creating job posts and they now also have tools for performance management to help you identify words that are not inclusive. For example, if you're using jargon like we need a, you know, a rock star or a ninja, like that type of language oh, can God. actually deter certain people. And they have a lot of data and research behind this, but they recently put out Deters me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they recently put out um, a report on language bias in performance feedback, which I, I found really interesting as someone who has explored different types of language bias throughout, you know, job descriptions and just even copy on websites or in media. Um, So that's what I want to deep dive on today. Cool. Yeah. I want to talk about the state of our social media ecosystem, which I've already previewed a little bit. 
and specifically how uh, the war in Israel is showing how social media is. This is from a Bloomberg article this week called Social Media's Idealistic Era Has Ended. I want to just call BS on this a little bit that that ended a long time ago, but I think it brings up, for me at least, <laughs> I think it brings up um, some good issues about how we think about the spread of information on our, our social media platforms right now the role and responsibility of these different platforms. And then um, we hinted at this a little bit, just what we have in terms of responsibility as users. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a good just gut check, you know, in this really, really tragic moment that is kind of unfolding in real time to say like, what what is the state of our information ecosystem right now? Mm-hmm. It's not great. I just wanna just, you know, TLDR. <laughs> fair, <laughs> that's fair. All right, where should we start? Um, let's go with yours. I'm I'm curious to learn more. Yeah, let's get the heavy stuff out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the argument that this uh, Bloomberg article makes is basically X and Meta once aspired to be go-to platforms for reliable, real-time information. And I want to give just a little bit of history lesson here based on my experience with these platforms. So um, Twitter obviously became the source of real-time news for a really long time. and was, uh, you know, starting at, let's say, the election of President Obama in 2008 and 2012, and then the Arab Spring, um, were probably some of the biggest moments, I think, for real-time news. The first, biggest first moments, let's say. But even as back as, and this is, I'm going to date myself a little bit as a a Twitter user here, even as back as the uh, plane landing in the Hudson is the first time Forget about I that. really remember an image surfacing on Twitter of that real time event and people tweeting about seeing that plane going down into the Hudson um, and pe- like news organizations actually taking that image that was posted on Twitter and using it in, as official imagery in mm-hmm. terms of like catching up with the real time news of Twitter. That's how far back Twitter's like foothold in real time news is. So that would have been what? 2007? No, no, no. 2000. Nine, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, somewhere around there. Yeah. So, and obviously, you know, my career has been very much in and out of social media. So, been following that as both, you know, when I was working for President Obama, but also just kind of as a user for a really long time. Yeah. I the one bugaboo I have about how this article frames X X aspiring to be a go to platform for reliable real time information is that I'm not sure that since the company killed off Twitter and rebirthed X, mm-hmm. Linda Yaccarino at her infamous interview at the Code Conference, what was that, last week or the week before? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say infamous and embarrassing, really. Like, very much was, was against the idea that she was basically like, Twitter is dead, long live X. And I don't know that X, under Elon Musk, has actually aspired to be a go-to platform for reliable information. Mm-hmm. Real-time information, but he has taken away a lot of the trust and safety and filters, put a lot of the, you know, replatformed a lot of the people spreading the most misinformation. So I would say his ambition, if anything, has been to turn the ship around from the reliability uh, standpoint. Sure. So that's on the X side. From the meta side, there was a time in 2014, 2015, again, I'm kind of dating myself. <laughs> We were in active conversations with Facebook because they were actively trying to turn it into a news platform. 
they were building strong relationships with media organizations. They were pushing video. Like they wanted a lot of journalists and, and news organizations putting video on Facebook at the time. And really were trying to turn the news feed much more in the direction of news and away from, you know, the babies and the breakups that had kind of dominated uh, Facebook's news feed up until that time. Yeah. And so they specifically kind of brought on the idea of meta, what would, what would become meta. Um, as a news platform. And now, with the birth of threads, which is getting a lot of new users because people continue to defect from Twitter because they're looking for reliable real-time information, mm -hmm. and they're going to threads and asking Zuck, asking Mossery, is that who you say his last name? Um, the, the head of Instagram and threads. Basically, like, is this a good place for reliable real-time news? And they're trying to say, this is no, we don't want to be in the news game. We don't want to be in the news game. Meanwhile, they're like screenshots and rumors abound that they're about to release trending topics just like Twitter has. Right, right. And I made an argument on threads yesterday that you can't simultaneously put trending topics up and then say we don't want to be a, a place for news. That's not what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So huh. <laughs> we are at this weird place now where two platforms who historically have wanted to be in the news game. Mm -hmm have now both, one, killed off their, or at least one kind of killed off its predecessor and one rebirthed it into meta or like split it up across platforms, I guess. And the one kind of real time, the best kind of real time play they have right now, which is this new, new Twitter competitor, they're trying to say, no, 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 news. They're not saying news isn't welcome, mm -hmm. but they're saying like, we don't want, we don't want to intentionally encourage journalists or hard news people on here which is just right. it makes no sense journalists are already going there they're already trying to rebuild a little bit of what they lost um on twitter over the last few years right and like how could you not be a place for reliable news i mean it just anyway i don't understand how that strategy is going to work it just seems like a recipe for disaster to be honest yeah um so that's kind of the status is we're at, it's we're at this weird time where at one point, they both wanted to be a reliable source for news information. Mm -hmm. And now for various reasons, they both don't want to be that. And still continue to, you know, be places where information is shared. And so how do you thread the needle of, I don't want to be a source of reliable information, but I'm going to be a source of information. Like, is the only thing that we're losing the reliable part? I guess, perhaps, you know, it's interesting, like, I was just reading an article about threads, and they've lost what, like, more than 80% of their active daily active users or something like that. Um, which is not shocking to me, at least. Um, I think one thing for me about Twitter is that, because I've used it for so long, I've been able to curate my my timeline, my feed. And I know who I'm following, and I know that I trust those people um, to to share information. Um, I I look at them as experts or just good journalists, news sources. So maybe that's what Twitter is relying on or banking on, or just humans, which would be weird because <laughs> I just can't see Elon Musk actually giving a shit about humans. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's very odd. And then it's like, is there some fear associated with 
for both platforms with them being the the source of news? Is there fear around that in terms of if they get it right or wrong and backlash? I don't know. It's interesting. I think I, I go back and forth on how much I'm worried about Twitter being a source of information at all right now, mm-hmm. because the especially Twitter's Twitter's power in the past has been its ability to drive real time news in the mainstream media. Right. And it seems like journalists, as we predicted weeks ago, are starting to lose like faith that they can find reliable information there mm-hmm. and are migrating to places like threads and other places where they can find sources and other journalists to network with where they can actually, you know, help with their story ideas and pitching and, you know, driving of real time news. Sure. Um, so I think that Twitter is just losing X, excuse me, is just losing a foothold in that space because of how much it is. I mean, it, it, this, this story calls out and other stories I've seen have called out just how much disinformation is spreading just about the Israeli war sure. that's happening right now. Yeah. It's wild. You're seeing all kinds of, I mean, there was, there was a story about Cristiano Ronaldo holding a Palestinian flag that was completely false. Oh, like just some random shit oh. like that, that's spreading on there like wildfire. Yeah. And so it's just, it's really frustrating how much that is losing ground as a place for reliability right ahead of a presidential election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the good news to me, well, maybe this is a good news. I don't know. We'll see. But I would rather it lose credibility now than in a year after a lot of disinformation has been spread about the election. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe that's the silver lining is like you can if we don't trust you now, if we lost all trust, then you can't as reliably spread disinformation. But you're still going to spread it within certain pockets of the public, like within the tech bros and right wing bros that, you know, still haunt. The, the old halls of Twitter. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I agree. I'd rather we sort of rip, rip the Band-Aid off now rather than at the end or after 2024. So, But also, what's to say that threads won't end up turning into Twitter, especially if they're going to add this trending topics feature i know i really wish they wouldn't like i i think that there's a way to do i think there's even a way to kind of turn the ship and prioritize hard-hitting real-time news mm-hmm. and and supporting journalists who want to build a platform there without doing trending topics i just feel like the minute you do trending topics you're you have people who want to game the system yeah you know yep and it's it it does become a place i'm sorry you, you, but they're doing the worst of both worlds to me right now which is we're going to put trending topics on the platform, and also we don't want to we don't want to have to care about reliable real time news. Yeah. What, so you're you're going to go ahead and let misinformation spread then, because you're creating trending topics, mm-hmm. which people are going to go to to see what's trending, but you're not actually going to create any kind of editorial oversight of what's trending in a way that you know makes sure that information is reliable. Like that's really what you're saying, right? Uh, uh, and it kind of it. What's frustrating to me about this is it kind of mimics some of the arguments that that Zuckerberg has made about First Amendment bullshit mm-hmm. in the past, where he really has this juvenile understanding of editorial responsibility. And they want to, again, kind of say we're creating these tech products, but we're not a media organization because media organizations have editorial responsibility. We don't want any editorial responsibility. Right. And they, but they kind of like wrap it in this First Amendment bullshit. 
So that's kind of the direction we're going. And it's, it's pretty disappointing because I'm still pretty bullish on Threads as a long-term platform and a long-term competitor to yeah. um, Twitter. Uh, you know, I don't think, I do think obviously it's had a huge dip in engagement and it's got all this kind of normal, um, you know, Threads is dead. Oh, wait, long live Threads kind of nonsense that happens with these kind of platforms. Sure. But because we're having so many disaffected people coming from Twitter and because you know, the users there, I think, have really taken foothold. We'll see. I, I think it's going to continue to grow. I don't know if it'll ever have the kind of cultural power that Twitter had mm-hmm. back in its heyday, but I do think it will grow and, and, you know, continue to be a product that Meta actually has to actively pay attention to mm-hmm. in some responsible way. I have a feeling it's going to grow for a specific population or group of people, um, like truth seekers or people that actually want reliable vetted information and that are actively seeking that not to say that people that go to twitter don't want reliable information that's been vetted but not to say that twitter users don't want reliable vetted information but i just see a lot of people who are overwhelmed by twitter going to threads um and i i think that would be like more of i think of more of like professional folks researchers doctors scientists true journalists going over to threads. So, One piece of context that we should give to the story is that um, the EU this week gave warnings to both X and Meta about the quote-unquote illegal content on their platforms around, that's basically like pro-Hamas propaganda that um, is being distributed there, basically without any kind of recourse, like without any kind of Again, like with the dismantling of their trust and safety teams and taking away all the like staff effort um, around reliable information, it's just spreading like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and Hamas is pumping it out. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in an insane fashion. And so, and the EU uh, commissioner, European commissioner, Thierry Breton. Oh God, I probably butchered that. Um, basically, warned them that failing to remove it would put their companies in violation of new EU moderation regulations as part of their Digital Services Act. Mm-hmm. So this is a first big test of the Digital Services Act yeah. that rolled out, I want to say, oh yeah, in August, so not that long ago. Yep. We'll see how they um, respond to this, but it's a pretty big warning from the EU. Um, and, you know, will they pull down some of the biggest social platforms across Europe because of this? I don't know, but we'll see how they respond. Bruce. So far, of course, Elon Musk has responded um, in classic Elon Musk fashion, <laughs> which is basically, show me proof oh, of my own platform. I don't know. It's so stupid. But, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this this uh, Digital Services Act is saying that they could find these very large companies like Google, Meta, Amazon, up to 6% of their annual revenue, which... I mean, they're rolling in the bank. That's an insane amount of money. That's a lot of money. So I'm curious to see what this looks like. I think it is going to be the first test of this DSA. We'll see. We'll see. I think we we briefly touched on this earlier, but I do want to talk about what is our responsibility in this kind of ecosystem. Sure. Because, you know, speaking of Charlie Warzel's point, like, do we have a responsibility to speak out on stories like this or really any kind of major news events? Do you, I guess maybe just personalize this because I don't think there's a good right answer to this, Mm -hmm. but what do you feel in terms of personal responsibility at these big kind of key news moments in terms of using your platform to talk about them? 
Um, I don't feel pressure. Um, although <laughs> I feel like increasingly there's been sort of like people that will post snide comments or posts like, well, the DEI folks have been quiet about what's going on. And I'm like, yeah, just because right. I do DEI doesn't mean that I know every single thing about every single person, identity, political situation. It, it's impossible. I, I, I do a very specific type of work. My work is very focused on strategy and coaching and leadership development. Um, and there are other people that are focused on, you know, specific identities like gender or race and ethnicity or whatever it may be. Right. And so uh -huh. I, I don't think. I think some people feel that pressure and feel like they have to say something. I don't, but I've always just kind of been like that. I'm like, I don't, I don't give a damn what you want me to say. I'm not going to say anything. And if I do say something, yeah. the most I'm going to say is, you know, I hate what's going on. I am sad that there are so many lives being lost and that's it. I'm not well-equipped or well-versed to speak out on the issue, the war that is at hand. I'm still learning a lot yeah. about what's, what's going on and what's happening and, I think it's a very, very layered situation and complicated situation. Um, and I don't know. I just, I don't feel that. I personally don't feel that pressure to speak out. And if people feel some type of way and they're like, oh, I'm unfollowing her because she didn't say anything. Go ahead. Bye. <laughs> like, See you later. <laughs> That's okay with me. Right. I, I prefer to speak on yeah. things that I do know about and that I have experience on and acknowledge and try to learn what I can from people who do know a lot about what's going on with this war. Um, which I appreciate. So shout out to all the people that have been sharing reliable information, sources, videos, books, because I find that really helpful. So yeah. how about you? Do you feel pressure to to speak out? I do, but I don't know that I always give into it. Mm -hmm. I, I like sometimes. I don't know, like, I think I felt a lot more pressure after coming out of my, the political world. Mm -hmm just because I was much more plugged in and understanding of a lot of what was going on, especially domestically. So I felt pressure to like distill that and share that with people who weren't as plugged in. Sure. Um, so to some extent that carries on and I do still feel a responsibility for that, but I, I think we have to find our own context. I mean, this is kind of the argument I make in my book um, is we have much more information about how the world's broken now than we ever have. And so there's no way we can possibly be advocates for every single issue or every yeah. single thing that comes up. We just don't have capacity for that right. mentally or otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have to find the context that really matters to us and the things that we really want to plug in on and the things that affect the people that we love. And it means that we are going to have to, to some extent, not speak about things that are important yeah. and that's a really hard place to be in yeah it really is i just want to acknowledge that like to some extent we have to pick and choose the things that matter the most to us and and really lean in on those things and be okay with either casually leaning in or not leaning in at all on other things mm -hmm. and i think it's a terrible choice to have to make given how much we know about all of the issues that are so important right yeah yeah but it's the same calculus that I think I would give to uh, same advice I've given to leaders and and um, company leaders about how they decide what what issues they lean in on. It's like, does it affect your customers? Does it do it affect? Does it affect your employees? Does it affect your clients? Mm -hmm. Does you know like where's thinking about what is in our kind of direct line of sight or a few de few degrees away from the people that we care about and that um, is kind of core to our business is a helpful 
framework for thinking about, um, you know, the things that we want to really lean in publicly and say we believe in. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to limit ourselves to those things, but it's a it's a start, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to speak out about neurodivergence because I have neurodivergent people in my family. I'm going to speak out about non-binary and trans issues because I have non-binary people in my family. You know, like that's it doesn't again mean that I'm going to limit myself to those issues, but there is a personal responsibility that I feel given that there are people that I love that are really close to me. Right, right. Yeah. I think in terms of leadership, it goes back to what I was sharing earlier from that article about, you know, making sure you say something, right? I think leaders do have the responsibility to at least acknowledge, you know, what's going on. You don't need to choose a, a or share your viewpoints or anything beyond just acknowledging what has what has happened and not just specifically as it relates to this current war, but just in general, when things happen that are affecting, to your point, your people, whether that is folks that are working for you internally, clients, partners, et cetera. So um, yeah, and the, the, the silence can be louder, much louder than, you know, you saying something. So yeah. I think there is some value to that. Yeah. It's tough. It is. I mean, I just want to acknowledge like this is, it's really a tough information ecosystem and anyone who wants to be socially responsible, whether that's a business leader or kind of on a, with your own individual platform mm-hmm. has to be thoughtful about these things and usually has to think about them before they become crises. Cause trying to make these kind of decisions in the middle of a crisis moment is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Adriel, why don't you tell us about low quality feedback? Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of unreliable information. Yes. Why don't you, that was the worst segue ever, but tell us why low quality feedback makes employees want to quit. Yeah. So um, I gave a little context early on, but um, a company called Textio, which has been around for quite some time that uses pretty much a, a generative AI tool of some sort to scan text to see if it's inclusive. So it scans for, you know, extra jargon. Um, words, let's say you wrote a job description, it'll kind of scan or parse through it to see if there's any language or words that might deter certain groups of people. Um, and they do this backed by a lot of data and research that they've done over the years. Um, but recently they released a report um, after uh, reviewing performance reviews of 13,000 workers over the course of two years. And they were able to prove that low quality feedback is actually uh, driving employee retention down. Um, In particular, they really focused on historically less represented groups and reasons why feedback is not effective. And it's clear that not all feedback is effective, right? So we often are pushing for quality feedback, um, which is going to be specific. It's going to be actionable, timely. We often kind of focus on the SMART goals approach to it. Um, Right. And so, yeah, it's it's really imperative. I I know we keep talking about it throughout the we've we've talked about it a few times throughout some of our episodes this this idea of making sure you're giving quality feedback but now we have some additional proof um about what that looks like and the impact that it's having um this report also found that feedback isn't distributed equally high quality feedback is not distributed Mm. equally so um roughly 83 percent of men say that they understand what's required to earn their next promotion in contrast 71 percent of women non-binary and transgender people um, said they understood, so a significant drop there. 
Um, only 54% of Asian people said that they understand what's required to earn their next promotion. And Black employees get 26% more unactionable feedback than non-Black employees, despite oh. only receiving 79% as much feedback overall. So there are some significant uh, differences there. I also really enjoyed reading through this report because they they focused on language, the actual language itself, which we've talked about some some episodes ago. But um, this idea of agentic and communal language, and when we're talking about communal language, we're talking about kind of words that describe someone in a fluffy way, someone who's passionate, they're motherly, they're kind, they're supportive. And historically, we've seen words like that. Um, assigned to women and non-Black individuals, usually straight people. So that's common. And then when we're talking about agentic language, we're really focused on the root word agency. So there's this sense of authority. Um, That person is very strategic. They are very driven, right? Um, And we know that less represented folks are less likely to be described with that language. And so this report tapped into a lot of that as well. Men were uh, twice as likely to be called ambitious. Um, Women were twice as likely to be deemed helpful. So again, ambitious is one of those words of agency. Helpful is more communal. Um, Latina people were described as passionate at double the rate of white people. So super interesting. I just, I thought it was a good reminder to really bring some data and drive home all of these moments, especially in my work, when I'm like preaching to the choir and I'm like, please give your people quality feedback. I, at this point, am facilitating a workshop to managers about feedback, quality feedback almost weekly. And so I'm excited to have this as an additional resource to be like, here you go. Here's some stats. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can be like, here's what low quality feedback Yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, at this point, I, I think it's safe to say a lot of organizations are trying to retain their talent. And so if we know that giving quality feedback is going to actually help you do that. Why not do it? You know? Yeah. So. It's wild. The stereotypes that we're coming across yeah. in that like <laughs> feedback. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's so obvious. Yeah. So obvious. But I, mean, I mean, it's just like, uh, yeah. the, you know, lowest st- hanging fruit. It is. It is. And stereotypes, they're, they're interesting. I, I do this exercise sometimes when I'm giving, um, when I'm facilitating unconscious bias trainings and it's always shocking to people. But what I do is essentially do a live IAT test and an IAT test is an implicit association test. It's been uh, designed and backed by Harvard for some time. You can go online yeah, to implicit Harvard yeah, and, and test these out, but I do it in real time and I show ridiculous things. So the last time I did it, I showed a, a, a cup of raw almonds. I showed a pit bull I showed a rainstorm and I also showed a playroom where somebody's child had just came in and threw toys everywhere, right? And so I just flip through the pictures really quickly and I tell people to say good or bad when they see the image. So it's good, bad, as fast as you can, right? And it's so interesting how people kind of get like, like startled a little bit or just, yeah. you know, we have a discussion after and so I'll flip back through slowly and I'm like, okay, you see the almonds and people are like, oh, good, healthy, great snack. And I'm like, bad for me because I'm allergic. Then we go to the dog and people are like, oh, I love dogs. And then you, I almost always hear from someone that's like, oh, I had a bad experience with a pit bull or I know someone who did. Right. And so mm. we form these stereotypes about things or these beliefs, not just stereotypes, but these perceptions of things based on what we see, what we've experienced. Um, and, you know, that's just normal. That's just how we retain patterns. And so for me, it doesn't surprise me that people are assigning these words, these 
communal and agentic words to people because it's just based on what they've seen, the patterns that they've seen. So, um, but knowing this, it means that we can be intentional about shifting our beliefs and our perceptions of people, but it does take work. Yeah. Well, speaking of intention, I was wondering if it gave any red flags or even like a checklist of what to look for Mm -hmm. when you're giving feedback to make sure you're not giving low quality feedback. Like I'm wondering are there examples it gives or even just like, I don't know, things to look out for. Um, I don't think it really did anything like that. Or maybe you could give us those things. <laughs> <laughs> it was more of a informal report. Um, but yes, I, I think there are definitely some things to call out, right? Um, I highlighted a few of them before, but making sure that our feedback is actionable, making sure that it's specific. Um, when it's timely, it's helpful. So if I'm giving you feedback on, I don't know, a, a talk that you gave today, I don't want to tell you two months from now and be like, hey, Caleb, you did a great job you're going to be like, I don't even remember what happened two months ago. <laughs> like, right? Versus right. I see you later today or I see you tomorrow. And I'm like, hey, Caleb, I loved your, your talk. You did X, Y, Z. It was amazing. I think you should absolutely keep delivering this in this way. Right. It's very specific. It's actionable. Oh, thank you, Adrian. Yes. Oh, how, how helpful. You know, I do what I can. Um, <laughs> but it, it helps when you're really specific about the actions and behaviors that people should not only change, but that you want to see more of as a leader, because that helps people understand how, um, you know, they're performing and what they need to kind of build upon. So those are some core tips. And then, of course, just be mindful of the stereotypes. And that requires us to individually check our bias, but it also requires us to be mindful of, you know, any sort of review processes, rubrics that we're leveraging making sure that we are actually assessing people in a fair way and that favoritism isn't coming into play. Our own personal biases aren't affecting the feedback and things like that. So. So you've given us lots of good ways to make sure we are giving high quality feedback, but what about if we want to give high quality feed forward? (laughs) I mean, what, what do we do then? Oh, that word feed forward. I mean, I think it's the same (laughs) thing, right? I think, um, and listen, like for oh my god, I love that you're like seriously <laughs> answering <laughs> when I was just like I am because completely just shitting like around on your. But you know, very some people might want to use that language. <laughs> I don't know why, but hey, go for it. Feed See forward. a few episodes ago, <laughs> why why we think that is a stupid stupid term. It's fine. Again, don't want to yuck anyone's yum. If you really love that that term, but oh, goodness, I don't know, man. Feed forward, just not into it. Yeah, yeah. Um. But I will say that uh, coaching and open discussions around feedback is really helpful. I think one of the things that I've consistently seen, and they also, I think, touched on this in the report, although I wish they did a little bit more on how you would change or improve things. But one thing that I've consistently seen people miss on, managers and leaders in particular, is asking people for feedback on their feedback. It sounds a little bizarre, but... Ah. Is this no, I think that's super important, right? Is the way that I'm delivering this helpful to you? Do you understand what I've shared with you? Could my delivery or explanation or or examples be more explicit or whatever it is, right? Just making sure that it's an open discussion and it's not just you as a leader or manager coming to this person and being like, I have some feedback for you. Here it is. Good luck. Bye. Right. Yeah. Um, so I am all about meta analyses yeah. and trying to like critique the tools by which we do our jobs. And I think you're right that like delivering feedback is definitely one of them. Yeah. And we don't get it's not like we've got 
coaches that watch us deliver feedback that can then give us feedback on that feedback, you know, mm -hmm. like, so you're right, like, usually the only one we can give get feedback on our feedback from is the person we're giving feedback to I'm trying to see how many times I can get feedback <laughs> into one sentence. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and just one more stat I wanted to share. There was another report um, that Forbes published and they published this last year, but they found that 62% of people wish they received more feedback. Um, and about 83% said they appreciated getting feedback, whether positive or critical or negative. So interesting. People want more feedback. Um, and I think this also ties into a discussion we had probably a couple months ago about the need for managers to take on more coaching skills. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's when yep, you're actually yep, yep. really supporting someone. Again, you're making it a conversation, there's dialogue, you're soliciting feedback from them as well. Um, I think. We need more of that, especially now that managers are no longer just expected to assign tasks, but you're also expected to help guide people through their careers as well, advocate for your teams, and assign work, and set the vision, and, 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 yeah. right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, we talk a lot about middle managers, especially yeah. having coaching skills. I feel like, honestly, if you and I were going to write a book based on the things we have learned since starting this podcast, yeah. it would be like, treat your middle managers like coaches uh yes. integrate ai and don't be afraid of it yes. but also be a little afraid of it yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> sounds right what else i feel like there's just all these themes that like end up becoming recurring yeah recurring themes and all the stories and all the news that we've been we've been reading about it week after week oh and how about People aren't going to go back in the office, CEOs. Like, I just just get over it. That's yeah, <laughs> that, that whole story. One thing I, I want to see more of and I hope to see more of in the next year or so is just more implementation of all of this data that we've been collecting. Like, I want to see more organizations openly doing case studies. Yeah. Everyone likes to do them behind closed doors. And it drives me mad sometimes because even some of the projects I've worked on, I'm like, this is incredible. We've done great work. And then it's like, we don't want to share this publicly. And I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. Well, then then there's a selective bias, too, because the only thing they end up sharing publicly are the good, is the of good course. stuff. Of course. Of course. Right? Yeah. Yep. So, yep. I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of why I asked you about, like, how they were giving more kind of diagnostic tools around, like, oh, you did this great survey about what low-quality feedback is, so mm -hmm. how are you going to help someone? How are you going to help the next person, like, not give that low-quality feedback? Yep. So, at the very least, love to see more, you know, instructional uh guidance attached to these great surveys and all this information absolutely i agree all right should we uh go to our one good things for the week start ending on some good notes tell people uh why they shouldn't lose hope <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe that's maybe that's a tall order but uh, let's at least put some good news in people's brains let's do it what are you bringing for your one good thing um well uh, recently, California became the first state to mandate the collection and the release of diversity data from VC firms. And I thought this was really interesting. Um, if you from VC firms specifically from VC firms specifically. Yes, correct. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. Um, I think I, I mentioned this, but if not, and if you aren't already follow my DEI and five series, um, but I've been talking a lot about uh, the VC fund called the Fearless Fund, which was sued a few months ago um, <laughs> for 
providing black women entrepreneurs specifically with funding. Um, it was in the lawsuit, they were deemed to be discriminatory um, or discriminating. Oh, towards wasn't that others. from that same like right wing asshole? Oh, who was, yes. Like, bringing these kinds of uh, lawsuits. That yeah, one, that's what I thought. That one. Um, and and just recently, there is a, another group called uh, America First Legal, who is now suing a group called Hello Alice, which is a Latina um, owned AI, there's some sort of AI tool for like entrepreneurs or businesses. But anyways, they are also being sued um, for providing funding in partnership with Progressive Insurance to Black women. So really interesting stuff. (laughs) And again, it's being flagged as being discriminatory. Uh, Give me a break. So is this California law basically trying to put like legislative backing behind this kind of like you know, diversity in like founders in the venture ecosystem, trying to give them some legislative cover. Right. I think there is. So it's expected to take uh, effect in March of 2025. So we've got a little time here, but um, it's going to require VC firms in California to submit annual reports on the diversity of the founders they are backing. And so I think this is a, a much needed step to start um holding these these funds accountable it's very necessary it's so interesting to me how we're we're seeing these lawsuits especially for those that are funding black owned businesses and and entrepreneurs because i think the last report i saw across the board black owned or or black founders are only receiving like less than 2% of overall funding that exists yeah it's bleak um it's it's really bad so um yeah, I think this is the first step of, of us seeing some accountability and we'll see some public data, the founders race, their sexual orientation, disability status. Um, and if they these companies don't comply, they are apparently going to face some penalties that will be decided by California courts. Fascinating. Yeah. I just, these lawsuits you mentioned, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to imagine getting in the brain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of someone <laughs> who makes it their life goal to stop people of color from advancing. Yep. You know, like the like of all the causes that you think you want to dedicate your life and often your fortune to, mm-hmm. it's to the, you know, perceived oppression of white people through opportunities created that aren't for them. Yeah. Like imagine the immense privilege it has to take, like the mental loops you have to jump through to do that. I can't actually. <laughs> like I, yeah. I struggle every day. I, I question it. Whenever I see it's, updates it's, about this, I'm like, why, why? It's wild. Why? I mean, we're in our we're in our one good thing. So I don't want to. I don't want to. Settle on that for too long because we're supposed to be sharing good news. But uh, I just I have such a hard time wrapping my yeah, head around that. This last one really just threw me for a loop. I mean, the Hello Alice and like I said, they partner with uh, Progressive Insurance and they awarded two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So. Ten twenty five thousand dollar grants to black ten black owned small businesses, and this suit is claiming that it violates their civil rights. I, yeah, <laughs> it's still a good thing I mean, though. Shout out to California Govern, of, Governor Newsom. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's this is yeah. great. Um, it's sad that the first thing I thought of was two hundred. $250,000 and even going to get you that far. No, like, not at all. <laughs> like not you're, at all. <laughs> you're doing lawsuits over. Honestly, in the startup ecosystem, something that might give give you a runway of 
six months a year, maybe, maybe. if you're lucky, depending on what your business model is. And depending on where you live, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And that's without that's without paying your staff. I mean, I'm not even talking about salaries. Right? Anyway. Yep. Whatever. Haters gonna hate. That's right. Let's move on to our next piece of good <laughs> news. I want to talk about this new AI tool that is going to diagnose brain tumors on the operating table. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, right. Um, and this is kind of I wanted to highlight this kind of because we were talking to Kate about AI last week. And we've been talking about, you know, from these are the kind of things where I feel really hopeful mm -hmm. about AI, you know, obviously, generative AI is having a moment. And we talk about what's scary around that in terms of creative license and workforce displacement and all that yeah. and also what's good about that and but like this is the underappreciated benefit of ai because we're not in the medical field mm -hmm. so we don't like you know i feel like those of us who write for a living and create for a living like me and you yeah feel the generative ai stuff a lot more than we know about like the medical improvements but this is one of the places where we've just seen ai some really cool kind of leaps and bounds mm -hmm. with what's possible in medicine it's really really so, interesting yeah, so this this system is called sturgeon. Okay. Which is funny to me because it has sturgeon, sturgeon in the word, cute. but also isn't that a fish? Isn't a sturgeon a fish? Maybe, is it? <laughs> sturgeon. I think it was. Yeah, think you're it right. Yeah. Yeah. Weird name for something that goes in people's bodies. Anyway, um it was first tested on frozen tumor samples from previous brain cancer operations and it actively accurately diagnosed 45 of 50 cases within 40 minutes of starting genetic sequencing. Oh. So it was then tested during 25 live brain surgeries, most of them on children. Good God. Hmm. Alongside the standard method of examining tumor samples under a microscope and the new approach delivered 18 correct diagnoses, failed to reach the needed competence threshold in the other seven cases. It turned around its diagnoses in less than 90 minutes, short enough for it to inform decisions during an operation. Hmm. So basically this analysis can help doctors in real time on the operating table decide how aggressive to go in terms of removing tumors. That is pretty cool. I'm, I'm amazed. I recently learned about um, remote surgery. Have you heard about this? Telesurgery? I have. Yeah, it's wild. I just my, my brain is still trying to process how all of these things are possible. But I like that yeah. you're bringing good news about AI. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's exciting. I think there's a lot that we don't see every day. Like, I feel like the scary stuff and the the stuff that's going to affect people's jobs is probably the stuff that we talk about the most. Right. But things like this is like supplement where it supplements yeah. someone's job and really gives them eyes and ears that they didn't have to help make like literally life changing decisions, mm -hmm. life saving decisions. Yeah. This is this is huge and important. Definitely. So we got to We got to celebrate this kind of stuff. Really cool. Sturgeon. <laughs> sturgeon not just a fish anymore yep very cool <laughs> all right well um you are dressed all fancy today as well are you going somewhere fun after this um i am i'm just going to a friend show so nothing nothing too wild but yeah it'll be fun no. all right yeah. well that's not i mean hey still sounds fun yeah adulting. i'm just gonna go help my kid do homework <laughs> that also sounds fun <laughs> <laughs> Less so, less so. Uh, um, all right, good times. All right, um, we're going to do a Q&A episode very soon. Uh, and we would love to hear from you about what you would like us to answer in terms of questions about the week's news. Again, we've been talking a lot about the role of management, leadership when it comes to hard social, social issues, 
AI and its effects on the workplace, um, hybrid and remote work. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of ground because the the ground for social responsibility in business feels like it is vast and wide and more complicated every single day. So anything that you would like to ask us, we would love to hear it and answer it on air. Just shoot us a note, DM us at our Instagram account, leadership. That's a leader, S-H underscore T. Or drop us a contact at leadership.show. Or you know what? Follow me and Adriel and ask us on our own individual Instagram accounts. We'd yeah. love to hear from you. That's at Caleb Gardner or at Adriel Parker on Instagram. Pretty straightforward. And we will see you next week. See you soon. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more about Adrielle and her diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Parker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. You can find more information about me, Caleb Gardner, and my work and hire me to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And you can find my book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold.